Well, it's so good to see everybody. Uh, and before we get started, let's go ahead and let's pray one more time. And uh, there we go. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll uh, get to work in the text. Dear Gracious Father, we come before you. We thank you so very much for Jesus. And uh, what do we have other than, it, than what you've given us, Jesus? And what do we have in this world other than your promises and your grace? Um, we're so very thankful that you have taken a keen interest in our life. And you have worked so supernaturally in our hearts to bring us to this point that we are right now. <clears throat> so very thankful. We ask that as we look at this text this morning, that we would be obedient children, uh, listening to the advice of our Father, and that we would have the right demeanor as we go into this text, thinking correctly about you, about ourselves, and about the gospel. We thank you so very much for everything you blessed us with in your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we say, amen. So, I, uh, I'll be honest with you, the kids that need the discipline the most are always the neighbor kids. Right? Never my kids. Always the neighbor kids, right? No habit is so annoying as that other person's habit, right? Sometimes we think about that, especially when we think about kids. Uh, my grandmother used to say when she saw a kid in the grocery store acting up, she would say, give me one hour. That kid will never do that again. And if you've ever met my grandmother, uh, you would know that would be the case. Uh, you would never do that thing again. The point being, there's a lot of foolish children out there, and we see them. And our text this morning deals with foolish children and how foolish children, and we're not going to just say those who are just not behaving well. We're talking about, when we talk about foolishness in the book of Proverbs, we're talking about somebody who does not look at the word of God, accept the word of God, does the opposite of the word of God. So when we're talking about foolish children, we're talking about spiritually rebellious children. That's what we're talking about. Uh, in fact, I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that you can have a well-behaved foolish child, one who in their heart does not submit to the word of God, but they, they are, they're, they're following the rules, they're not murdering anybody. So we're going to look at that, and, and obviously we're going to be thinking about parents and children, and our heart is going to go out to some of the parents who are here in this room who have children who are not walking with the Lord, and many of you will, will read some of these, these statements found in this particular text and uh, have a tearful amen that that's exactly how I feel and as I was thinking about this text, I, I couldn't help but think of this one incredible truth that goes along with it, is that, you know, I, I'm a child to my parents. That's probably a shocker to some of you. Um, and, and yes, the things that I do, as, even as an adult, uh, but, but yet still have parents, uh, I, I could still bring shame to my folks, and, and I'm sure that there's plenty of things that I do and say that bring them that break their heart. But more importantly, I have a heavenly father. And 
as I was studying this text, of course we're going to be talking about children and parenting. But there are going to be times where I'm just going to break from that and just say, we also are children who act foolishly towards our Heavenly Father. And if it's true that parents on an earthly plane are heartbroken when their children are disobedient to God, imagine how our Heavenly Father feels when he's dealing with us who are foolish children. So this morning, go with me to Proverbs 17. Uh, By God's grace, we'll start in verse 21 and end in verse 28. Now, how we get there might be a little iffy, but that's by God's grace, that's what I plan on this morning. So we're going to be talking about foolish children. And in this text, I want to show you two things, right? There's going to be two points here. The first is going to be found in verses 21 through 24, where we look at foolish children. And in speaking of foolish children, generally, foolish children break things. And we're going to see that. In verses 21 through 24, foolish children break things. And, and it's unfortunate, right? The second thing that we're going to see in verses 25 through 28 is that foolish children inflict pain. So they break things, and they inflict pain. So let's look at this first, that foolish children break things. And notice what the first thing that they're going to break. Notice the first thing we're going to notice here in verse 21 of Proverbs 17. We're going to see that foolish children break the hearts of their parents. Notice what it says. It says, he who sires a fool does so to his sorrow. Now, there's a lot of discussion here on this phrase, sire, and, and father, uh, and, and, and a lot of people are trying to understand how did the fool become this way, and, and, and they focus on, this may be a product of bad parenting, right? Like, the fool is a product of the parents teaching them foolishness, and they do this, the, the, the parent who's a fool, who raises a fool, thinks he's doing something God-honoring. He thinks he's doing something right. He's doing something wise. But ultimately, he's hurting himself. That's one way to read this. The other one just says, look, there's a guy who, who has a child, and the child grows up to be a fool, and that brings sorrow to the parent. I'm just going to be honest with you. In this verse, the focus is on the sorrow of the parent. How the person became a fool doesn't matter in this verse, right? Here's the point. Foolish, disobedient children are a sorrow to every parent. Even if the parent raised them to be a fool, there is still sorrow that comes with that. There are also parents who try to raise their children in the admonitions of the Lord teaching them God's word, pointing them the way in which they grow, they should go. And as the children go older, they walk away from the Lord. They act quite foolishly. And I've met many parents who I've had this conversation with where they, they say, I don't know what else I could have done. You know, I, I stand, my conscience is clean before the Lord, that we raised our children in the way that they should go. We spent time taking them to the right places, teaching them the right principles, and they just walked away. And the pain, the grief 
that comes from this. And, and, and here, Solomon's pointing that. Look, there is tremendous sorrow for parents when they watch their children walk away from the Lord. Incredible grief. In, incredible. They often will talk about, I remember when the child was born and the great joy of having that child. I remember that child when they were young. And, and, and the sweetness of that little kid, Right? I remember all of that. I look at other parents who aren't training their kids and aren't as diligent as I was, and their kids are turning out great. What's going on? It must be me. It must be me. And there's this incredible sorrow. There's this incredible sorrow that, oh, people found out what my kid did. People found out. Oh, that's a shameful thing. Now we, now we have to deal with that. There, there's tremendous sorrow and I think about this, and, and I really try to empathize with parents and, and, and know this, that if you tried to raise your children in the way that they should go, and when they became an adult, they walked away, that's between them and the Lord. If you did your job, you can stand before the Lord with a clean conscience. It doesn't mean that there isn't sorrow and grief. There is. But it's not necessarily your responsibility that they walked away. That's between them and the Lord. You will not be judged for the sins of your children. They will be judged by their, by their own. Just like they will not be judged by your sins. But as I was thinking of this, I thought, well, I'm also a child. And I'm sure there's plenty of time I brought sorrow to my folks. Uh, not only just emotionally, but I probably blew out their eardrums. We, I did form a punk rock band in their basement with a full drum kit and bass guitars and amplifiers and full distortion. I don't think they slept for years with that racket. But I I can't help but think of my heavenly father. think, Think about this. Think about your own sin. And think about how sorrowful you feel over your own sin. And then think about how your heavenly father looks at you in that sin and how he deals with you. And then, then look to somebody else who's sitting in your row or somebody behind you or somebody in front of you. He, de- he deals with their sin as well. And then he deals with my sin. And then there's a whole bunch of people that we don't see that he's also grieved over their sin. That, that must be unspeakable sorrow. Then notice what it says next. The father of a fool has no joy. Uh, this word for joy here is kind of an interesting word. It, uh, it, it speaks of uh, not stomping your feet and clap, clapping your hands. Basically, uh, when a father has a son or has a child that's a fool, he's not going to throw a party and not have a hoedown. He's not super excited about that, Right? But notice, notice the next verse, right? A fool, a foolish child breaks the heart of a parent. That's true. Even for us theologically, when I sin, that breaks God's heart, right? Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. There are numerous passages throughout the Old Testament when God's looking at the sins of Israel and he's describing his, his sorrow and his grief and his vexation over that. And I see a connection here in verse 22. Notice it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up bones. Isn't that interesting? That right before he said a foolish child 
causes no joy. And then the next verse that said after that speaks about how a joyful heart is good medicine. And when I looked at it, I said, well, that sounds absolutely opposite of each other, doesn't it? Like those two verses should not necessarily go together. Is what he's saying a joyful heart comes from a wise child? Is that what he's saying? So like, yeah, if you have a foolish child, he breaks your heart, but that heart can be mended when you have a wise child? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that you can have a broken heart over your child, but the medicine, the, the, the thing that you need is joy. That, that, that maybe joy is not necessarily tied to your children, but is tied to your relationship with the Lord. That's really what joy is, right? Joy is this deep-seated contentment and satisfaction in God and his promises that causes you to have a positive outlook because of what the Lord's doing. And there are plenty of things that happen in this world that are not joyful. If we think about this situation, a child that's walking away from the Lord is not a joyful thing. But I've met many believing parents who are joyful even though, their, even though their children are walking away from the Lord. Why? Because joy is tied to their relationship to Jesus Christ. And when you are joyful, yielding to the Spirit, joy is being produced as you're thinking about the promises and all that you have in Christ. Guess what? That is like good medicine. That is healing. That's what the Lord wants. And notice what it says in verse 22, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Uh, kind of interesting here, the word for dried up bones is something that's skinny, weak, and brittle. And so it's this idea that somebody who has a broken heart, it takes away their, their vitality, it takes away their ability to move forward. For me, when I look at this text and I think of joy, I can only find joy in Christ. Joy can only be a product of the Holy Spirit. It's a shame that so many of us try to find joy and satisfaction in so many other things. I've even met parents who try to find their ultimate joy and satisfaction in their children. And children are a great joy and a great blessing. But trust me, they are not big enough or strong enough to bring you that true joy that only the Lord Jesus Christ can offer, right? Our joy must be centered on him. Now, as I think about this, this foolish child who, who breaks their parents' hearts, causes this, this huge distraction, there's this hurt and this grief, that, that, that child just doesn't break their parents' heart it goes out into society, and, and I, can't help but un, I can't help but see this, this sweeping thought of, of the, the foolish one and what a foolish one does. And this is kind of the behavior of a foolish child. Notice what it says in, in, in verse 23. It says, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. That's what a fool does. A fool does that. A, a foolish person receives bribes. It's kind of an interesting thing here when it says the, the receives a bribe from the bosom. The, the idea is, is that somebody comes, and this is a secret act, right? They have money in their pocket, and they come and they secretly give it, and it's, it's all 
close to the chest. Nobody knows about it. So this is what a fool does, right? A, a fool is willing to only think of himself and only the benefits he can have and, and is willing to, what, pervert justice. Notice, that's what he's doing. That's what a bribe does. Ultimately, a bribe will pervert the ways of justice. It will change justice. It will make things not fair. It clouds the judgment of the one who receives the bribe. He's not determining his judgment based off of what is right and what is wrong. He's basing his judgment off of what kind of money have I received and what kind of judgment can I then give. This perverts justice. This makes things unjust. So what does a foolish child break? Here, he would break justice. A foolish child would be one who would be willing to bribe so that he could get his own way, willfully destroying justice. By the way, there's been a lot of discussion in our time about justice and what is justice. Uh, we, We have to understand that for us as Christians... Our concept of justice must start with looking at God. Our definition of things must start with him. He is just. And so when I think of what is right and what is wrong, I must begin with God. God is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong and what is fair. And so as I'm developing my ideas of justice, of what is a just thing to do, I must start with his word. This is the bedrock of justice. On Sunday nights, we've been going through a book of the Bible each night, each week, just as a survey. And I've I've had this incredible opportunity to reread the Bible and get ready for some of these things and see and see the nation of Israel as it splits. And, and you start looking at the rulers, you start looking at what the prophets are saying, and almost without, without, any, without any exception, all the bad kings received bribes and perverted justice, and they had the sense that I can determine what is right and what is wrong. And they stopped looking to God and his word as an arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. A bribe is definitely what's wrong. It clouds people's judgment, and it makes the judge say, I can now determine based off of what's expedient for me and good for me financially to make a decision. That is all kinds of evil. I wish I could say that there was a country or there was a time in which this never happened. This always happens. The flesh loves doing this stuff. The flesh... And, and, and sinners and even believers are willing to bribe. I, I remember one time uh, trying to get into Mexico and uh, for a missions trip, and the border patrol person said, I'll let you through if you give me some money. And we as a church had determined, no, we're not going to give money, but I'll be honest with you, when you sit at the Mexican border for five hours in the hot sun in a giant aluminum box called a van and you start to sweat and get aggravated, it is easy to say, what is 
50 bucks. Right? What is that? 50 bucks is nothing. What does this text say? That perverts justice. That perverts the way it works, right? We as believers should be against bribes. We should be for true biblical justice of what is right and what is wrong. And if we are tempted to pervert justice ourselves, we need to have some serious time with the Lord. But the question is, why does this foolish person break everything? Why does he break the hearts of his parents? Why is he willing to to break the whole penal code? Why is he willing to do this? Notice this next verse. This next verse is very telling. It says, wisdom is in the presence, or, or literally in eyesight, okay? In eyesight is in the presence of the one who has understanding. So the idea is that a, a, a person who has discernment looks at wisdom, sees wisdom, makes his determination and discerns the right way to go based off of God's wisdom. That's where he's looking. He's looking to God's word. He's looking the principles found in God's word, and that's what he's following. And as he looks at that, that's the goal. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. And everything that he's deciding is towards that goal because it's always in his sight. It's always there. He's not distracted from it. He's not looking away from it. He's, he's looking right at it. That's, that's the image, something that's right there. But notice verse 24. But the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. So a person who has discernment can see wisdom. It's there, always moving towards wisdom. The fool looks everywhere else. One is focused on God's wisdom. The other one cannot focus on God's wisdom. There's no self-control. It's look over here, look over there, look over here. I don't know uh, how many of you have ever seen that movie Up. The little dog, right, where he's going after something, all of a sudden, squirrel, right? They have theological squirrels, right? That's what a fool does. He's chasing after the ball, squirrel. That's what a fool does. He's not focused on God's word. He has no set goal in mind. It's just wherever, he, wherever he's looking, that's where he'll go. He, he can't set definite goals towards wisdom, towards God, because he's not looking that way. Isn't this sad when we do this? Man, uh, this past week has been an interesting week for me. Been, been very interesting. Um, it seems like all the passages I'm studying always become the thing that the Lord wants to teach me throughout the week. And so guess what I had stru- trouble with this week? Focusing on God's word. Focusing on the principles that are found in God's word. Being distracted by those theological squirrels. This, this is easy. And why does a foolish child act the way he does? And why does he break? Because he forgets about God's wisdom and he's willing to go through all this other, he's willing to find his answer for life everywhere else other than God's word. I'm debating on what I should say next. I'll say it. This is for free. I fear that the modern church, post-COVID, 
has a terrible view of the sufficiency of God's word and the sufficiency of God's wisdom. And I think that the post-COVID church has not learned the lesson that God has wanted us to learn. I fear that we are so distracted by every other thing that's happening when the Lord clearly wants us to return to him, focus on him, and see our sufficiency in him. I was scared for the church in the United States before COVID. Now I'm just saying, whew, it's bad. Now it's easy to talk about other churches, right? It's easy to look at all the other failures and all the other children that are active that have bad habits, and no habit needs to be changed more than the other children. But let's be honest. Search your heart. Think about the past week. How easy was it for you to get distracted from God's wisdom? If it was easy for you to get distracted, that probably means we have a little bit of work to do, right? We're not there yet. But I am very thankful of the promise that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. I am very thankful that even though I might chase after every other fancy, that I have a heavenly father who is so incredibly forgiving and gracious. And that I can confess my sins and he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. My prayer for the church now and for all of you, and hopefully your prayer for me, is that we will find God's word, God's principle, and Jesus Christ sufficient for us. And that we would become so enamored with the word and with Jesus that everything else is just like, meh, I got Jesus. That's why a foolish child breaks things, because they're so, they're so focused on themselves. This looks good, that looks good, this looks good, that looks good. They're so selfish. There's no self-control. We do that. We break, we break things. We break the heart of our Heavenly Father. Now, there's another thing that foolish children do. Notice what they do in verse 25. A foolish son is grief to his father. And then notice this. And bitterness... To her who bore him. So what does a foolish child do to their parents? We already saw that there's no joy. And once again, Solomon kind of says that. Yeah, he adds grief. Grief to the father. There's this incredible, overwhelming grief of of a father who, who wants his children to live for the Lord and do what's right and be honoring to the Lord. And when they see that and they look that in their children, they just there's this heartbrokenness. What's interesting is the word that he uses to describe the feeling from the mother, right? The father has no joy. He's grief. He's hurt. The mother, the New American Standard uses the word bitterness. There's not really a good English word that kind of describes what this is. This is an overwhelming sense of vexation. This is an overwhelming sense of hurt, of irritation. It, it is a bundle of, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm hurt, I'm, ah, 
It's that bundle of emotions that are all mixed together. And that's what the mother is. Isn't that interesting? The father has no joy, but the, but the mother, oh man, it really hits the mother. You could say it inflicts pain, right? This, this is huge pain, huge emotional pain that's caused by people when they don't follow the word of God. When, 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 when godly parents watch their children walk away from the faith, tears and hurt and, 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 and a sorrow that some of us have no idea what they're going through, right? So what does this foolish person do when they start inflicting pain? Notice, isn't it interesting? He goes, it is also, notice that he uses the word also, meaning There's a connection between what was just said and this next one. It is also not good to find the righteous. Once again, isn't that interesting that Solomon, he goes, he talks about the parents, how the parents view about a fool, and then it then automatically talks about the fool in the penal system, right? Causes grief to his father, willing to give out a bribe. Causes grief and bitterness to his mother, willing to find the righteous. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that it, there is this, there is this uh, pain that is caused, this infliction of pain and brokenness, and it seems to just break everything down? Th- this word for fine means to, well, that's what it is. It's to, it's to tell somebody you did something wrong and you owe the government money because you did something wrong and it is not good to do that this is one of those uh statements that we would say well that's a understatement right it's an understatement to say yeah it's probably not a good thing to find somebody who's doing what's right we would all go yeah no yeah that's probably the least that could be said here about finding the righteous we could even say, looking at this, why would somebody be willing to find the righteous? Paul tells us that the flesh is always in opposition to the things of the Spirit. Kind of interesting that maybe some of his motivation to inflict pain on righteous people may come from his fleshly living and his antagonism towards spiritual things. And then I see this next part where it says, nor to strike the noble. I don't think that what this means is it's not good to go up and punch a prince, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think this is like some sort of Machiavellian thing where if you, if you strike a king, better make sure you kill him. When he says noble here, I take this as noble in character. So I see this as being a righteous person. I see this as a synonymous parallelism, right? The first line is saying the same thing as the second line. Don't persecute the righteous. Don't inflict pain on somebody who's righteous, who has noble character, who's trying to live for the Lord. And this word for strike means to hit with a stick as capital punishment. So don't strike the noble. Notice, 
for their uprightness. You see, you see the motivation? He hits them because they're following God's wisdom, and the fool hits them because they're following God's word. Don't do that. Don't try to, don't try to persecute. Don't try to inflict pain on somebody who's doing what God's asking them to do. That's what a fool does, right? It's kind of funny. Yesterday, uh, well, it's not funny. That's probably the wrong word. It, it's interesting, funny, because yesterday we were talking about the flesh, so that's not funny at all. Um, it's an interesting coincidence that we, we read Galatians where it talked about how the flesh always persecutes the spirit. We read in Romans about how the, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards the things of the spirit. So a fool is one who doesn't want uprightness and God's wisdom to last. Think about this. How, how sad would that be if you had a child who you raised in the admonition of the Lord only to come out on the other side when they're an adult trying to inflict pain on righteous people for their righteousness? How about this one? How bad do you think it is when God sees his children willfully inflicting pain on other children for the sake of their righteousness because one might be walking by the flesh. If we hate it, and it's a sorrow to us, imagine what God the Father thinks. Now, it's kind of interesting because there seems to be a change of gear, but, but I actually kind of see it similar as the statement made above, right? So I see verses 21 and 24 as, as like this progression, right? There's this, there's this fool, and then he goes out into society. He, he, he breaks society. He breaks the penal system. And then, and then there's this reason. There's this lack of self-control, right? There's that flow from 21 to 24. In 25 through 28, I see that same exact flow, I see that same exact thing. And and it may help us understand why the fool, in in fact, inflicts so much pain. Notice what he says in 25. He who restrains his words has knowledge. Now, don't think of this as somebody who doesn't talk a lot automatically means that they know God. This is not just saying a quiet person is the wisest person. This is talking about a person who knows who's able to discern to say the right thing at the right time with the right attitude. That's the person he's talking about, right? The wise person is the one who has that self-control. Where does self-control come from other than a fruit of the Holy Spirit? And then notice what it says. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding, uh, cool here is, is seen as not somebody who's like a James Dean character who walks around in a leather jacket and you go, look at that guy, that guy's cool. That's not, this is, cool is the opposite of anger, okay? So in, in the ancient world, when, when somebody was angry, they were always referred to as being hot, hot-tempered, Right? That, that there was this boiling of the blood. There's steam coming out of the nostrils. The opposite of that was there's, they're not overheating. They're not boiling over. There's not steam coming out, right? So this is talking about somebody who's patient. So a person who is 
patient is a man of discernment. And then he says this thing, and this has been quoted to me numerous times through my childhood. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. This doesn't make him wise. Right? It doesn't make him wise. Every time this was quoted to me, it was always, that's the wise thing to do, not say anything. That's not necessarily what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying it is possible for somebody to be foolish, but people look at them as being wise because they don't say a lot of stuff. It has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with, if, if you're just quiet, that shows your wisdom. No, wisdom here is the one who can say the right words at the right time in the right attitude. A fool does not say the right words at the right time in the right attitude. In fact, he can remain quiet at the right time for nefarious action, like, I don't know, a bribe. The whole thing's secretive, right? And notice what it says. It says, even when he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. doesn't make him prudent. So we would say, okay, well, Caleb, so what, why, does the, why would Solomon kind of include that there at the end? Is he just, does he just have an editor's quota that he has to write 28 verses here? And he goes, oh, I, I just have this, this one that will go really good here. I think it demonstrates that a fool is hot-tempered and flies off the handle. Why does he inflict so much pain? Because he's selfish. He cares about himself. And, he, and he's willing to fly off the handle. I've probably told this story before, but it's my favorite story, and I have the microphone, so I'm going to tell it again. There once was a fly who was flying around the room. He got hungry. He saw, he saw a piece of bologna on a table. He says, I'm going to eat that bologna. Gets on the table, eats the bologna, and realizes that now he's too full to fly. So he says, all right, I'm going to walk it off. So he walks down the table, onto the floor, tries to fly, still too, too heavy. He sees a broom handle on the other side of the room, says, I know what I'll do. I'll walk over to the broom, climb up the broom handle. Maybe by then I'll walk off some of this weight and I'll be able to fly. Walks all the way up the handle, jumps off, falls to his death. Moral of the story, don't fly off the handle if you're full of baloney. That's, that's the sense here. That's the sense, right? That, that, that a fool is willing to fly off the handle and he's got nothing good to say when he does. He wants to inflict pain. He wants to hurt. So obviously, there's many parents here who have children who might, this might describe their adult children who've walked away from the faith. And the question is, what, what do you do when you have a child like this? You gotta remember, first of all, your walk with the Lord, that your joy is found in the Lord. Second of all, you got to remember that you are still the parent and you should be praying for them and that your love for them is that you can believe that the Lord can work on their heart, that you hope that the Lord can work on their heart, and you are constantly that positive influence of speaking biblical wisdom to them. And when, you, when in doubt of what is the right thing to say, I find Always talk about the gospel. 
Why? Because that's what they need to hear. If they're a non-believer, they will hear the gospel and believe. And amen. The foolish child will not be as so foolish. And maybe they were a believer and they walked away from the Lord. What other message do we have that could woo and warm the heart of a believer other than the message of the cross and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? I know it's easy to get angry. I know it's easy to get frustrated. I know it's easy to lash out. But we still have to walk by the Spirit even dealing with people like this. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I have never been in a situation where I yelled at somebody and said negative, bad, mean things to them that changed them to be on my team. It has always been the opposite. It has always been when I've been walking in the Spirit, saying things from that sense that the Lord has used that in a positive way because I'm walking by the power of the Spirit. But there's this other principle that I'm thinking of. This is how God views me. I'm his child, right? I'm his child. I'm his son. There's this incredible bond. The spirit, as it works in my heart, allows me to say, Daddy. I mean, think of that. The creator of the universe. I have such an intimate relationship with him that I can have a pet name with him such as Daddy. Think of that intimacy that I have with the creator, sovereign God of the universe. Think about what he's done for me. He he sent his son to come and die on the cross for my sins. Be rose again. He's given me the Holy Spirit. He's given me the word. He's given me a church family. He's done all of this stuff. And then there's moments that I, as a selfish, foolish little boy, says, I know what's better for me than my sovereign creator dad. And I act out of the flesh. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip. I'm just trying to put it in perspective that God is grieved when his children sin. And when I think of that, that I can make God sad, there, there are times where right before I get ready to do something, I go, God would not like me to do this. And I do not want to cause the one who has loved me more than anything else in this entire universe could ever love me. I don't want to inflict grief on him. And so by the power of the Spirit, I remember what God's word says. I rely on the Spirit and act out of obedience. And my hope is not to put a guilt trip on you to say, oh, how depressing it is that I, make, that I, I can cause God grief. I think there should be godly sorrow when it comes to sin. But I think that we need to get past that. We need to say, okay, there is forgiveness, but what about next time? Maybe this should motivate me to at least think about what I'm about ready to do before I do it. God gives us many images. He gives us many things to help us in this life. And this metaphor is a powerful metaphor that helps us in making decisions. And so my advice is think about what your sin does to the heavenly father. And hopefully next time when you 
have the opportunity and you have this temptation that you'll walk in righteousness knowing that I don't want to grieve my heavenly Father who loves me. All for his glory. So that when we get to heaven, he can say, look at the object of my grace. Look at what I can do with terrible sinners like Caleb Hilbert. Look at how I've worked in his heart. Also that we will all bow down and say, wow, Caleb was a terrible, rotten sinner. And you did some of your best work with that piece of clay. And we all say amen because of God's grace and his mercy and his love. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you have sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins. And that by faith we can receive that gift. And that we then become your child. Or we become your child and then we receive your gift by grace. Help us realize who we are in your son. Help us realize the gifts and promises that you've, that you've made to us. And help us live in such a way that honors and glorifies you. And that we may lead a life that's pleasing, worthy of the calling with which you've called us. We thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all that you've done in our lives to this point. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.